Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. I'm Geth Anastretton, who's combined business now success with the, when it comes to her attack of the charity sector, um, initially starting her own foundation and then some projects, really impressive projects that come out of that. So we're going to unpack that, which would be brilliant. And um, when I was listening back, I could hear um, Anna's uh, jewellery jangling. And I was just, because she's so animated, um, talking with her hands. Um, she talks about success, failure, learning, COVID, um, a lot of people in New Zealand will know this, but she was one of the first to uh, launch some very beautiful masks, and which has been hugely um, successful. She sold in in one go three hundred thousand of those. Um, I think there's so much to pick up from this episode. Uh, sit back and relax and enjoy. Fine. I'm um, well. It's raining in Morrinsville, but um, it's certainly um, not a difficult thing. It's slightly and nicely warm. Good, so good, it's good. nice to see the season's changing. And the, when we met in person, so we met about a year ago uh, now already. Um, we met in Wirree. We met on a, a roadside cafe um, and you had just been into Wirree Prison or you're about to go in to Wirree Prison where you have been running a charity called Raw. Um, and I thought we could just jump straight into um, your Raw story. 2013, was that right when you set up Raw? Yeah, well, 2014, I set up the my own foundation in 2013, and Raw was the first charity to, to come out of the foundation. But interesting that you talked to the cafe, the roadside cafe in Wirree. I was about to go into the prison, so I used that um, very busy cafe as my office, um, and that the prison cafe is a little exposed in the middle of winter, so I guess it would have been a little colder when we met. Yeah, it was a bit of a shock to me. I hadn't long really been back for, from the UK, and... Um, I, I remember, I think you and I shared half a donut each, didn't we? Uh, from, yeah, from well, <laughs> I, I think it was more the, you know, do you want a donut? And I said, no, but desperately did, like every woman does. And you said, oh, go on, I know you'll have half. And I said, no, I'm not going to have half. And so you went and got it and, and I ate it. So <laughs> I am a secret closet donut eater. Me, me too. Um, yeah. So, yeah, correction, uh, well put in terms of you set up your own charitable foundation and raw. Yeah came out of that which is effectively a program and I, I love the um the name so it's reclaim another woman yes uh, and and just tell me about the inspiration for that and and how you got to that um I guess it's like anything it's I've never you know it's it's not the strategic life of planning and knowing exactly where I was going to end up and the I guess some of the you know different areas that I was intending to work in, whether that be from an entrepreneurial perspective or a social perspective. So I set up the foundation looking at the sort of next 20 years of my life, knowing that I had children that were part of the succession plan for me commercially, and started to think about how, given I'd run a company that had a, a lot of heart in its activities, so we aligned with a lot of charities um, along the way, with no particular reason for that. Um, but we certainly, when I set up the foundation, I was looking to tackle 
for some of our biggest social injustices, not really knowing how I was going to do that or where I was going to start. Um, but certainly it was a ch chance meeting with Ronnie Albert, um, who's actually meeting with me this morning after we finished speaking, Mark, but uh, a chance meeting with Ronnie where she came to, she was the CEO or still is of the um, Waikato Women's Refuge to Whakaruruho. It's our largest Māori women's refuge. Now she came out to meet with me in Morrinsville because the refuge was struggling financially and she really just wanted to see what it was that I could or would offer or whether I would align with them in some way. I mean, she just wanted to start a conversation because she'd heard that my heart was in the right place um, and I did activate alongside different initiatives, I guess, where I saw the fit um, and sort of, you know, related to those people that were in leadership roles. So that's kind of how it all came about. So it was working um, when Ronnie was uh, sitting in front of me, I decided that I didn't know enough about Māori. I didn't know enough about the social injustices that had that had happened in this country. And I certainly felt that this was an awesome opportunity for me to have a closer alignment, closer awareness, and make a, a much bigger connection with Māori Dun. Um, and so that's where my journey started. I agreed to help Ronnie. Uh, and part of that help was setting up an independent governance board for her, which I still chair today, but also working alongside her to help her develop the relationships with the key funders, not only in government, but also in the community. And, and that's where Raw was born, I guess. I looked at the work that Ronnie was doing, which was in crisis, and saw how important that work was. And I, you know, I looked at the demographic that was using the refuge service um, and also saw that it was into its third generation. So effectively, the violence had been normalised um, within families. And so for me, I was thinking about... And I was very green in these days, very green. I was thinking about how I could create a change model that would perhaps give women that were traveling this journey of chaos, of disruption, of violence, of alcoholism, of, of drugs um, and criminal activity, how I could um, set up a, a change model that would potentially um, get them to think a little differently around the way that they could live their lives. I didn't know that they wanted that, and I guess that was my first big mistake. I, I thought that everyone would want to travel a similar journey to myself in this country, but I certainly felt that it would be a better way for them to go to than having to sort of be um, repeat users of the refuge service for, for most of their natural life. So that's mm. kind of how it all started. Yeah. I struck me sitting there sharing that donut with you um, and I was thinking I would be quite nervous going into prison. Do you remember what it was like for you? You said you were a, a bit green and, um, you know, I imagine prison hadn't been part of your life. But do you remember that first day when you went into the prison to um, deliver the program or, or do the initial piece? Yeah, I I do. Um, I guess like everyone, you know, you kind of, I, I know that um, we take a lot of guests with us into the prison for a lot of different reasons too. And a lot of those are at the request of the woman that we work with rather than us suggesting people. But um, it's, from the point of view, I guess the prison's a big, scary place to a lot of us. Um, and, and, and that is because we fear, um, I guess, the women that actually activate in this area. So, you know, one of the, and then that's, I guess, what drives a lot of the media, it drives a lot of the outcomes for the woman in the justice system is that absolute fear that we have of the activity that they get involved in. But for me, yeah, I, I, I was curious, I guess, but um, certainly slightly excited um, and a little bit fearful as I went in. And yet when I got inside the prison, I saw that it was actually no different to walking around a huge school complex 
um, it sort of reminded me of a, a school, a, a girls' boarding school, really. Um, and that the uh, we were we very much activate the war model on the low side of the prison. So that's where girls are being housed on low security. So there's a lot more freedom. And that doesn't mean or that doesn't denote the crime that they've committed. It's just that they've managed to behave in a way that has got them over into the low side. Um, and it's sort of compartmentalised into blocks, different blocks, and the girls are kind of there as if it's recess, really, um, in a school. And they're sort of around. Um, they often call out to us because we'd started to know a few of the girls. Um, you know, we, before we went in, we actually had some relationships. So, yeah, it was... A little daunting, but I guess, yeah, I mean, from my point of view, I quickly got over that um, and certainly have never, ever felt unsafe in there. And and even when I'm there on my own, I'm not with custodial officers um, and I'm just, you know, in the space, I certainly don't feel um, under threat at all. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the aim is to reduce recidivism. And um, you talk about, uh, I've seen somewhere, 100% success rate, which is fantastic. Um, what what's been the success of Raw? Like working with those women who, I imagine, come out of prison without many options, straight into poverty, straight into chaotic lifestyle, and then revert to what they know. And and your program's really about giving them an, another um, possibility or possibilities. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, it's such a big story now, but you know, we went in there with the goal of, I guess, offering another choice um, that we had gone out and negotiated with what we believe were very engaged communities. So whether we're working with employers or whether we were working with the educators, um, we were able to unearth opportunities that weren't going to cost the woman anything. Um, and we're, in the case of employers, I guess in the case of education, but in the case of employers, they were incredibly receptive around um, where women were based in the raw model, um, they were happy to give those women a chance um, in roles that you know, we felt that would be particularly suited to the women. So it's important that you know we just didn't go out and find any jobs. There's plenty of minimum wage jobs that nobody wants to do that people tend to think that that's all offenders deserve. So for us, it was about getting inside the headspace of the woman and saying, what is it? that you really want to do you know if you if you could dream big um if you could try something what sort of role or what sort of education you know would you would you kind of think about and in most cases they didn't know because no one had ever asked them that question and they never had to think like that so once again that was a very green Anna Stretton applying her thinking um to a woman that was you know had come from a very different space from from myself so while we were endeavoring to stop that repeat prison journey, so the journey of recidivism. Um, we were also very mindful, and this only came with time, um, and only came with time. We were very, very mindful that to get a great outcome, we had to win the trust of the woman, and that was going to take a big journey of just walking alongside them and letting them work out what the change points would look like, rather than us overlaying what I now call our colonial plasters, where I would say, okay, when you're out, we're going to do this, this, and this, we'll enroll in this, and we'll get you started in this. And, you know, that's the way I would do things. Um, and I I can't and should never have overlaid that in the way that I did. But you only learn those things, I guess, and it's like um, working commercially. You try things. Some things work. Some things don't work. And those that do work, um, you go on to amplify. Those that don't, you learn those really powerful life lessons from and you make those wonderful changes. So it's exactly the same with war. So it was very 
um, much a journey of time and trust, but it also um, it attached, you know, we attached accountabilities to it. So if you were going to try and walk this journey with us, um, you certainly couldn't have a foot in both camps. Um, you couldn't have your cake and eat it. You know? So it was important that you endeavoured to give it a really good go from the get-go. Yeah. I mean, I was hugely impressed when I met and talked to you about the charity because this is life-changing stuff. You know, this is impactful. Um, and and I love the story you just outlined, which is kind of learning as you went along and realising that, you know, people had to have a say in designing their own future. Mm. You're where are you? So, you know, you're a social, I'll put you down as a social entrepreneur and, a, you know, sort of entrepreneur, entrepreneur. Um, is that your happy space, create, creating something, scaling it and then handing over to someone else? So where, where are you on that sort of entrepreneurial spectrum? I'm very much on that, you know, creating something, scaling it, then sort of walking away to find the next thing. Um, so very much that person and get really driven by that. And I guess a great example is the... Um, the activity of the face masks that we inadvertently got into because we had a reach out from a charity in, a, in our first level four lockdown that said, hey, Anna, can you make us 6,000 masks? And I said, hey, sure. Um, we've got the fabric and the elastics and um, you know we've got everything you need and it'll keep us all busy. We're all on the wage subsidy anyway. Um, and it'll keep us, as a, you know, keep the doors open at some level from the point of view of being an essential service. And that kind of evolved into being known. And that was just a you know pro bono, hey, yeah, will do it um, to this mania that became uh, you know we sort of became a massive producer of masks and I think at last count we've done over almost 300,000 masks into this country so it's um, certainly been huge um, and, and as I say I guess a very different framework to work in because it was motivated by fear in a lot of cases um, and also eventually a government that did a sort of a 360 and said well we initially told you that masks wouldn't do anything but now we're saying you've all got to wear them if you're on public transport or you know if we are in level three so that created a massive um, business opportunity that also enabled us to support um, and that we've you know at the moment we're still active around Middlemore Foundation and we've you know supplying them with thousands and thousands of masks um, you know off the back of this last soiree into masks which was our second lockdown so I guess for me I love the entrepreneurial pursuit just love it um, but I love to think that it's more than that um, and there's a social connection that sort of um, sits in behind and I can think about um, both sides of that equation as I go. So always the mask, even when we first developed it, was you buy one. And when we went from making the 6,000 for this charity, we knew we had so many reach outs while we were here making those masks that um, we knew that there was perhaps a business model in it. So we did the buy one, we'll give one. Yeah. Um, really good to hear Anna's charitable work and her for-purpose work. The next part of the episode focuses on the early years. I went to a very normal state school, Karamu High School in Hastings, um, so I certainly didn't have the benefit of private schools. My parents separated when I was nine, so it was a pretty disruptive childhood, but there were, there's hundreds of other kids that have grown up with parents that are separated, and so certainly though, both of them um, were very amicable and you know connected well with each other, so it wasn't difficult. Um, so yeah, I from the 
Karamu. Um, I went down to Ta- Tauroa High School in Paiatua for my last year. Mum and her new partner bought a hotel, oh, leased a hotel in Paiatua. I decided hotel life wasn't kind of for me. I was going to work a year for them um, and then went back to school. Um, I was very bent on, and I guess I just because I was kind of slightly lazy. Um, I always took the easy way. So I kind of did geography and biology and art and, you know, avoided all the maths and the science and anything that was slightly difficult. So I saw myself as highly creative. Um, and from Paiatur, I went down to, um, this was just that year, one year in Paiatur, but I went to art school in Dunedin. And the reason I went there is that the acceptance bar wasn't very high. Um, so I was able to um, spend a couple of years there. I got, I sort of realised that I was never going to be the next Ralph Hotery, famous New Zealand artist. Um, and so kind of thought, well, I'm never going to be really good at this. I'm never going to make a lot of money. So I jumped into hospitality and I ended up at THC Wairaki. Um, as their restaurant manager at the ripe age of 19 with a team of 25 waitresses. Um, wow. So running huge functions for organisations like BP Europa, who used to bring a 1,000 people in from all over the world, and I was their head person. So I was very, from a, from a very young age, I kind of believed in myself and my ability to, and I don't think I would have managed people very well. It would have been very dictatorial and authoritarian. It wouldn't have been collaborative. It would have been just, hey, do this. We've got to get this done. But I managed for THC Wairaki. They had about five function rooms that used to go off um, through the, the conference season. And I was the key person that um, kind of worked in that space. So from there, I ended up in Hawke's Bay um, and was mucking around in hospitality again because I'd met a man at THC Wairaki and we decided to head back to the Hawke's Bay, which is where we were both from. Mm. But um, the the interesting thing was I was kind of not doing very much and it was my father that said to me, I guess, over a cask of Liebestrom, because that's what we all used to drink out of the cask, um, um, Liebestrom being wine, for those of you that are, are too young to know that. But um, <laughs> he said to me, you know, you're wasting your life, you know, you just – and I just – just been fired from a job for not turning up. I'd gone to the beach and they'd rung to check that I was okay. And my younger sister had said, oh, she's not here. She's at the beach. So I just lost a, a, a job. Um, and he said, you know, you just, you, you just, I just can't believe you're throwing so much of this away. And I said, really? I said, you know, I could do anything that, that you could do, you know. I mean, creative is intrinsic, you know. You, yours is learned. You're, and dad had an account. He had an accountancy and um, a law degree. And I said, you know, pick a degree and I'll do it. I'll show you how easy it is to be you. Um, a lot harder to be me um, because of that intrinsic nature around creativity. And he said, well, you should pick it. You're going to do it. And I said, you know what? I'll choose accountancy. Just all feels kind of like it might be useful later on. So I did it. Seven years to prove my father. Wow. Uh, yeah. It took me seven mm. years of part-time study um, because I worked along the way. I had to join an accountancy firm in the end because I, it was really hard to get my head around it and make it all make sense. So I had to actually put it in context. So I started to work through the Ernst & Young chain. Um, but, you know, that is actually the best thing that I ever did. So I have this really rare mix of left and right brain now. Um, yeah. So I have my handle on, and, and I didn't just study some accountancy. I completed it. I actually have an accountancy degree. So Fantastic. I have, So it was only about 10 years ago that I dropped it um, around the, you know, the, the CA qualification that you have to complete the continuing education each year. So 
that it's you know it's it's been a hugely valuable thing that I did. Mm. Um, but yes, I did it out of to show my father that anyone could actually be in a lawyer or an accountant, but you can't be an artist. And I still believe in that today. You can't, you know, you can't be creative if you're not. Yeah. I'm the least strategic person that I guess war has walked this planet. Um, you know, I I got I was working. I went I, with my accountancy degree. Um, I left the accountancy firm to have a baby. They rang about sort of three or four months later and said, look, if you're looking to get back into work, there's a clothing company in Morrinsville that would love to have you. You know, I think it'd be a perfect job for you. It's accounting based, but at least it's in a creative environment and you might enjoy it. Um, I looked into that and I ended up <clears throat> going back to work within sort of eight months of having Sam. Um, I started working in an accountancy capacity for them, but I realized I really disliked, you know, that type of work. And so they, um, after about six months, offered me um, a position within the development team and it wasn't very clever what we were doing we were traveling the globe looking for styles that were hot and then we'd bring them back and we'd sell them to the chain stores so you know it was Tim Glasson and Jira Gillespie of Easy Buy um, you know the key buyers and farmers the key buyers and Kmart that taught me everything that I know so they taught me how to wheel and deal and how to really make money in the rag trade and that was another massive advantage so I was never you know we weren't designing we were just knocking off trends um, and pitching them to the big players and then creating them for them so we would then make them for them so and and I loved it I loved that part of it so when I went out on my own and that was based around they um, the clothing company I was working for employed me an assistant who came from Auckland um, and she said hey why are you working for these people why wouldn't you go out on your own and I said whoa I said why would I do that I said look look down in that warehouse I said when easy buy rejects an order um, I said you know, we own it. Where do you send 20 odd thousand garments that Easy Buy have ordered and you're late in delivering or there's a slight um, fit change that they're not accepting? I said, you know, that becomes pretty difficult to manage. She said, look, I don't know. She said, there's a whole lot of people in the trade that aren't as competent as you. Um, you should be able to do this. So with that, I handed in my notice and I headed out to um, set up the, the small clothing business, you know, that I that has now become Street and Clothing today on a farm that, you know, I was living with, uh, where I was living with my first husband and my two kids. Um, we put some prefab buildings onto the farm and I just started. And, and I guess, once again, I didn't go for the small stuff. You know, I then knew that I had the relationships with all these big players. So I went out and started to sell to them in a very similar way. But the company I'd come from, had just come from was very focused on denim. So I decided not to do denim to give them a clear airspace um, and I, I guess not create conflict. And I, I moved more into wovens and knits. But it worked. Man, it worked. You know, mm -hmm. my first year, I turned over a million dollars and was fifty percent profitable. You know, I just, I just didn't even know what to do with the money. Um, and then, you know, within sort of three years, I had a five million dollar business with Kmart New Zealand, where they were paying seven days. You know, I mean, wow. so it was a seven day, day payment term. So, it, you know, but that was the stuff I loved. I loved the wheeling and dealing and the trading. But that all came to an end when everybody started to import from China. And I decided that, you know, it was all just a bit difficult to investigate that market and try to manage that market. So as soon as it, um, you know, went away from local manufacturing, um, you know, I was left high and dry and had to reinvent my business. So I guess success has been just a journey of reinvention. really good to hear about Anna Stratton's earlier years and you get a real sense for the 
the human being that she is, uh, always achieving. This next bit of the podcast really focuses on transition from a very profitable non-branded fashion business to a branded one, uh, which endures to this day. So I know you're going to enjoy it. There's a lot to um, to learn from this uh, and uh, enjoy. The road of um, developing a brand. And, and, and I guess for me, it was about saying, well, I don't want to have to rely on someone else again to drive my um, fortunes or my destiny or my outcome. I just want to rely on myself, you know, like I want to be solely responsible for where I'm heading. So that's when I chose to develop the Anna S brand. And what, and what sort of the personal toll of that, you know, because you've, you've just on the verge of what you've, you've made a significant amount of money, life's suddenly really comfortable from that perspective. You can see what looks like a really, you know, big upside coming down and then to, to lose it overnight, did that have an effect on your, on your psychology or your personal life? No, because, you know, and, and often people say to me, you know, what is the worst thing that's happened? I actually see those things as the best thing that's happened. And, and you know, and I refer to COVID as being one of those rupture events as well. Um, for me, you know, when something like that happens, it, it forces you to stop and really think about the direction that you're going to go in. And often you'll open another door that will yield up a whole lot of different opportunities. And I guess when I started to establish a brand and under my own name, um, uh, you know, that became a very different platform of operation for me you know people started to link my you know myself with the brand um there was other opportunities that came up for me collaboratively with all sorts of different businesses i started to work philanthropically really actively you know i was um i became sort of well respected for being in the business of fashion i guess and now i've become um well respected for just pretty well surviving in what has been one of our toughest industries so i've certainly seen a lot of my peers fall by the wayside for a lot of reasons you know not just financial difficulties but some of them, you know, we don't have saleable businesses when we attach our names to them. And no. so therefore, um, you know, I don't want to sell my name. Um, I need mm. my name as I go forward and get involved in other things. And without the name, it's worth nothing. It's worth yeah. nothing at all. So, you know, that's the mistake we all make, I guess. But, you know, we get caught up in the whirlwind of, you know, the almost um, celebrity type status that you get in the fashion industry if you do well. I mean, if you think about Trulise Cooper and you think about um, Kate Sylvester and, you know, they're all, um, you know, attached to their brands and people have them up on pedestals, you know. So it's and people and there's a lot of us that really love that. They really love that. And that's why they're in there. Mm. And it, it strikes me as, you know, the long game is quite hard because um, things change, fashion changes, uh, trends change, pr price of commodities change, price of materials. Um, it, you said to me something before we did the podcast, actually, was you feel like um, you're in startup mode again, um, but that's probably really around um, masks and the, the kind of pivot towards making masks. Did, does the, did the business need the masks or the business doing no, I guess there's a whole lot of questions to answer in there. Um, I mean, the first thing is, is that you, you know, good businesses constantly should be in startup. You know, you should be thinking about how you're going to reinvent. And the mast actually um, showed me about that. Uh, I guess the the story of business is in that free market entry. So whilst I um, identified there was a gap for mast, that was driven by an opportunity where a charity reached out and asked me to help them. And I chose to do that in the level four lockdown, which was the initial lockdown 
we went into. That then turned into a massive business opportunity where I just happened to be there first. But in the second lockdown, I don't think there's a person out there that's not making masks. I mean, everyone is in the business of masks. Even our local dairy the other day had a little sign yeah. that they made masks. I mean, so it shows you with free market entry that people enter all the time and quickly because most people aren't innovative or entrepreneurial. They're just followers. So they look for an opportunity um, that they believe is actually going to generate some income for them. And, you know, the other day I spoke to someone who was so excited she'd sold 400 masks. Well, we sold close to 300,000. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but her excitement was benchmarked around her perspective. You know, that was huge for her. So um, for me, I see that with every business. You know, if you do well or you um, uncover an opportunity, and that's exactly what's happening with the animal business that we're running at the moment. We've identified another blue ocean opportunity. But I know, you know, I have to move a lot faster because others will enter um, and I can't stop them entering. So fashion's no different. Um, it's so easy to enter. It's really easy. Um, and, and the diversity of taste is so bloody broad. You know, what I will like will be very different from what my neighbour will like or wear or the shopkeeper's going to like or wear. Or so you've got a massive diversity to target. And there's so many levels. You know, you've got the really fast throwaway fashion that's polluting the world. And then you've got that insane sort of high-priced sort of almost heritage garment um, that some people covet depending on their level of disposable income. But, you know, for me, it is about always reinventing. And I guess that has been my journey. I've reinvented so many different times, but where in a lot of cases I've just reinvented in the same space and not really driven that true point of difference that you need to actually set you apart again as I had in the mask. So, I mean, the mask was just, I guess, a reconfirmer for me that, you know, I love that space. I love being there first. I love mm. having that, um, you know, that first key to enter but I know that there'll be others right up my backside. Um, yeah. And I have to move incredibly quickly if you're gonna maximize that. So I guess what happened to me in fashion is when I set out and set up my own little stores, what I identified that was outside the cities, no one really took fashion seriously in the small towns. So in the small towns, it was all about hobbyists who had small stores and they kind of tried to be everything all, everything to everybody. They didn't really do it well from a visual merchandising point of view. Um, they didn't really think about it um, too hard. And I've been working with the chain store who's were all about visual merchandising, all about how they presented their product and what it looked like and how they storied their product together. And they were very much about price point. They, you know, they're very much about, um, and, you know, if, if a garment was $39, they knew a woman would buy two. When it got to 49, it became a harder decision for her. So, you know, so I, that was what, you know, I'd grown up with that. So when I opened my first store in Havelock North, I mean, when I say grown up, grown up in my fashion industry boots, but when I opened my first store in Havelock North, I knew that if I could produce garments at $99, women would buy two. Um, but if I got them to 129, she just bought one. So as soon as it tipped over. So I had that whole price philosophy around where the tipping points were. And I applied that to the masks as well. And so I guess what the masks taught me was that it is possible to reinvent, but not with business as usual. You can't do it by just saying, oh, look, I've got a better collection this year. My fabrics are prettier or my price points are lower. It doesn't work like that. And so, therefore, you have to drive a point of difference that's highly desirable that people covet. Um, and you've got to work out what that tipping point is on that from a price point of view, a fabric point of view, all of those things. And we certainly did that with the mask. 
But um, all the all the master did was just reconnect me with the business drivers that I know so well, I guess. And I got a little lazy around them, you know. And for the last three or four years, the fashion business had barely broken even. It struggled, really struggled, because we just kept doing the same thing. I guess we were like a government department. We were grappling with a problem, and we knew we had a problem, but business and that business as usual was not going to solve. But all we knew was business as usual, so we just kept doing it and hoping. Yeah, and you have real clarity. It sounds like you got. Hey, you got clarity on that now in, in retrospect around. Oh yeah, you know, like yeah. and yeah, working on two or three, but we've never traded so well. Um, our, our retail stores, which are few on the ground now, in my heyday I had thirty. Um, I only have eight now, um, but you know the the retail stores are trading like you know they used to in the sort of the early nineteen. Um, sort of 1990s or late 1990s when I first started and they were phenomenal sales and that's happened for a couple of reasons I guess um, through COVID we started to think about a pricing structure that would make us more affordable to mainstream because mainstream is where the money is I mean at the top end there's lots of different choice and people generally covet through snob value and we're not a brand that sits there and we're not perceived as being there um, at the bottom end, you're well catered for with your chain stores, but the chain stores. But what we were targeting was that middle end that doesn't have a lot of disposable income, but does want a gorgeous frock from time to time. So we started to rethink our model um, and our, our price tipping points as well. But uh, coupled with that, we have massive exposure. I think you know I don't if, I don't often run into people that don't tell me that they've bought some of our masks. You know, most people start the conversation and say, oh, look, I've got some of your masks. So what happened was when people came on to buy them um, from the internet site, you obviously had to unsubscribe if you didn't want our newsletter. And most people kind of didn't work that out, so they didn't unsubscribe. So we got a massive growth in database. So now when we send our EDMs out, um, we get huge engagement and figures like we've never seen before. Sure, some people are unsubscribing um, and that, you know, you're going to have people that are working for the forestry or driving trucks or probably don't want to see a fashion EDM twice a week. But, um, you know, you're going to be left with a core database that's highly engaged with the product. So the masks opened us up to a whole sector of population that they knew who we were but didn't really know. Um, they thought they knew what we did, but they didn't really know. So the masks, as they queued outside our stores in desperation, especially when we turned the internet off um, to try and get masks, um, you know, they, it, ex it exposed us to so many new markets um, and demographics of people. So, and that's been exciting too. So the masks worked in so many different ways. And we never intended them to work that way. We just got on with the business of taking an opportunity. Yeah, because I think you, you said you like being first and, and yeah. you felt felt very first to that. I'm really interested in, so you, you know, you, when you talk about business, it just flows out of you. And what was it like when you landed in the sort of charity sector, non-profit sector? Like, um, and you, you've, you kind of, from my view, you've sort of smashed that as well. But what, what, what were the frustrations? What was it like a new language to learn? Were there new ways operating to, to or what, you know, what was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, those are really good questions. I guess the, the first thing is, is that, you know, when I'm working in a business sense, because I control my own outcomes, I don't, you know, I'm relatively accountable for my own actions and I call the shots. So if I want to change something in a heartbeat, I can do that. If I want to head in another direction, I can do that. If I want to activate a conversation 
um, in my, I guess, with my entrepreneurial hat on, there's generally a level of respect and people will listen. Once I got into the, and I say that unegotistically, it's just earned over 30 years. You know, people want to hear the story. They want to, they want to, I guess, especially fellow business people or they're keen to, to get the business gems and replicate some of them. Um, when you're the entrepreneur, uh, the charitable sector was just a different space. And all I can, I mean, wherever you go, you take yourself. So all I knew was what I knew. So I entered that in a very business-like way. And of course, I had no credibility. I entered one of the most difficult spaces, one that most of us don't want to tackle and we fear, and that was the correctional space. Corrections is government, again, so double negative for me um, and they had a huge disrespect for me um, and they and not in a million years would they have thought that I'd be able to achieve anything at all in this space in fact they didn't want to talk they didn't listen they didn't want to fund it um, and they didn't want to support us in fact they put up hurdles to thwart us to try and make us go away and so it was really just that tenacity and that absolute belief and the more and more women we came into connection with we realized that there was a, a job to do here and that we we could get this right and i guess the great thing about business is i love to fail i mean you said to me what was that like when you lost that business from kmart it was fine because it made me think about what next you know where do i have to go when we went into level four lockdown i didn't think oh my god this is it's over we'll never come out of this because we were struggling economically um i just thought wow these are opportunities now to rethink and i have permission to do that so i guess with the charitable sector I came up against brick walls every which way. I've never encountered anything like it. But I just kept going. I just kept going. And, and, and one day it just gradually became easier. You know, the respect was there. The achievements were blatantly there. Um, and we had this growing community of women that weren't going back to prison. Um, and I guess one of the biggest accolades was uh, a couple of weeks ago, I filed an application to the Proceeds of Crime Trust, which is an independent uh, pool of money that's run by government, which a lot of our women are massive contributors to. And the supporting agency was Corrections, and it was the CEO of Corrections that signed off on that application. Now, I mean, that would never have happened in the past, never have happened. And he did it within 24 hours of coming back from two weeks leave. Now, normally that would have been thwarted. I would have missed the deadline. It would have been unrealistic for me to expect um, that level of support within those timeframes. But he did it. And so I know now that we've earned it. But we've had to, just as we have to with the raw woman, um, we had to earn that right to be there to operate in the way that we do. And I absolutely respect and value that. Um, and I certainly know when we first entered that space, it was all very much about us. We knew better. Um, we'd been able to manage it economically. Um, we should be able to get great outcomes socially. Surely they were just transferable. Um, but it, it doesn't, it just doesn't work like that. And so the learnings for me have been massive. But I guess because entrepreneurs are willing to learn and love to learn, um, we're constantly in this adaptive space. So I operate by, you know, what a lot of the board members and my board chairs would say, um, and also a lot of the CEOs of community funds have said to me, you know, your strategy is very adaptive and they like it. They like it. So we yeah. certainly don't cast a strategy that we stay with um, no matter what's happening around us. It continues to change. It's very fluid. 
And what about the business model that underpins charities? Did you feel when you walked in, did you say, this is flawed, we need to change this? Or did you? Yeah, well, we set up a whole charity to do it called The Good Collective. I identified, but I continued to, not only through my entrepreneurial space, which I'm obviously very active in, but I continued to get reach out from charities that were at the bottom of their cliffs, um, sort of not knowing where the hell to head. But, you know, I was unable to help them because it was essentially just financial. You know, they weren't able to get the funding. And so it was about how we created, um, I guess, the capacity um, as well as the capability in the charitable sector. So we set up the Good Collective, um, and that was set up three years ago, and it was all about building capability into the sector and talking to the funders around capability. Funders are really good at funding for capacity. You know, they'll fund all your frontline stuff, you know, um, and, and then you produce the um, the the accountabilities reports that shows how many people you've saved or, you know, the impact that you've had on the environment. But for us, if we didn't get funders thinking about investing in the people, um, investing in those organisations themselves, we weren't going to have um, long-term sustainable organisations. So we're endeavouring to turn that conversation on its head. Um, and we're looking to partner with people like Andy Hamilton, who are actively involved with me, um, around building an entrepreneurial sector. So we have this thing called Entrepreneurs in Residence, and they are able to be sort of, I guess, um, lent out to charities to help them build that sort of robust business sensibility into each of those um, initiatives that come knocking. So, yeah, we have an organisation that does that because we do have to change the sector. I mean, it's a really important sector and there's so much hard work that goes on. There's so many great people. But without having capable business systems and processes in there, the impacts are diluted and the funder's money um, does not achieve the, you know, the outcomes that it could. Yeah, absolutely. And and just before we move to, to wrap up, and, and uh, I just want to, touch on the fact that you're relentlessly positive uh and are you always like that or do you have to sort of have a word with yourself what's and and also could you expand on like what because i think life's often about disciplines like daily disciplines but Mm. what does it look what does it look like for anna stratton um uh so many questions in there mark i mean yeah i am i am positive um because there's no there's no other way to really be um, in, in respect to a lot of things, in respect to your wellness, in respect to the team that I run, in respect to, I guess, my mental health. Um, all of that needs to be about the positive. But I guess I always see positive even in bad stuff. Um, and a great example of that is I'm dealing with a hugely costly leaky building at the moment. Now, for a lot of people, that would preoccupy them. And um, and it looks like the cost is going to sit with me. But against that, I've got a very good friend who's um, engaged in a full-on can- cancer battle with her partner. Now, I'd rather have 100 leaky buildings to be part, you know, other than, mm. you know, rather than being part of a cancer battle with someone that I was, you know, innately connected to or hopelessly loved um, in this case that, you know, and where you don't know what the outcome is going to be. I know exactly what the outcome is going to be in my case. It's just money. It's just money. Um, but for me, you know, I always find the good in difficult situations because that's the learning stuff and that's the stuff that's always, um, I guess, enabled me to grow. So I'm very much in that. And I guess even when I, and there are times where I just get exhausted by it all, you know, but one of the the things that I've found that actually works best is, um, and it's a saying of my sisters who works alongside me with in Raw, 
Um, she often says to me, you know, hey, sis, maybe, maybe when we're dealing with some of our most difficult stuff, we just do nothing. We just do nothing. And I guess the great thing about that is you just give a scenario time. And that is really good advice. I mean, just do nothing. And I often find that stuff starts to unravel, you know, or it just starts to get a little bit better or something else enters the equation that, you know, you didn't actually have at the time it was all, all erupting. So the just do nothing is something that I engage in a lot of the time. So when the really difficult stuff's happening, I just stop and just mm. let it sit there for a while. Because mm. when we were agreeing a time to, to speak, I, I put on the table a couple of evenings and you sort of kick those off the table. <laughs> and it's, it's, I, so I envisage um, Anna Stratton getting up at three in the morning mm. and then going hard until she falls over at sort of six o'clock at night. Is that what it looks like? Yeah, it is because I'm a, mm. in the early morning and especially that I, you know, I'm doing my master's at the Waikato Uni at the moment. Um, and, you know, we're at the end of our year, which doesn't help. Um, we've got another two weeks to go. But um, the, you know, I start really early regardless. So that's the, the time that I'm most functional, most productive. Some of my best literary work comes out then. At the end of a day, um, you know, I don't have that clarity of thinking. And so therefore I can't have a discussion where I can really draw on all the gems or I can, I can write in a way that is actually going to get me the marks I need or, you know, deliver what, what needs to be delivered. So, yeah, very much at one end of the day. Um, it, I don't work at night. Um, so when I come in, um, unless I have an assignment on deadline and I'm trying to work out, you know, how to get all the citations in properly, and that's not thinking work, that's just kind of, you know, producing those, um, I won't do anything um, sort of past six o'clock. So I find that I just, the, the, the content in the, um, it's just not there. It's just not as good. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for offering up your time and um, good luck with everything you do. Yeah, um, awesome to speak to you as well. And the same back at you, the best of luck. So thanks, Mark. Thank, thanks, Anna. Okay, Cheers. see you. Bye. Bye. Big thank you for listening tonight to Purpose Podcast. And um, I'm sure, like myself, you were in awe of Anna Stratton. Huge amounts of energy, relentlessly positive, doesn't let or didn't let failure drag it down and uh yeah everyone needs a bit of anastration in their life i think um if you enjoyed what you listened to don't forget to hit subscribe if you're on one of the platforms spotify anchor apple Podcasts, please tell a friend a colleague um as mentioned at the start my aim is to inspire people who are passionate or interested in the charity sector, not-for-profit sector, and hope these stories shine light on some amazing, where entrepreneurial spirit meets do good. Thanks Thanks for listening, and we'll speak soon. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.